Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What's going on, everybody? Steven here. And before we start this episode, I just want to give a quick disclaimer. There was some technical difficulties with my mic. Uh, so please ignore that the best you can. Uh, it's been fixed since. Uh, it wasn't plugged in all the way. But uh, yeah, just ignore it. And please enjoy this episode with Jeff Perlman. It was a great conversation. Enjoy. What is going on, everybody? And welcome. This is episode number 93 of RizzoCast. I'm Steven Risotto. And today, as always, we are joined by a very special guest, this is Jeff Perlman, New York Times bestselling author of nine sports books. Uh, and of course, one on the way. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, and he's also the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang podcast. Jeff, good morning. How you doing? Welcome. I was 20 minutes late to your, uh, to your no, 17 minutes late to your show. So I, uh, I, uh, I apologize, but I'm doing okay. Hey, as I told you off air, my schedule is literally nothing today. So you're, you're absolutely fine. Um, and I almost said happy new year to you. And I've been, I've been contemplating this and I really want to know the answer. And I feel like you might have some insight. When is the appropriate time to stop saying happy new year? That's an interesting question. I would say once you hit January 7th, you're done. It's kind of like the, the question I like to ask around this time. And I'm Jewish. So I actually, in a weird way, fascinates me is when do you have to have your tree down by? Like, when does the tree, because now you drive around my neighborhood and you see a bunch of the trees in the street. Can you still have a tree up January 11th? No, right? Done. Yeah, no, absolutely not. If it's uh, first week of January, I'll give you a buy. But if it's past the first week of January, just, I, you know, I, I just can't understand it. Like, for example, I mean, I'm sitting here at night and I have my, if I have my, my blinds open, I'm looking across the way to my neighbor's house and it's still there. No lights on it. Just bare in the living room. It'd be like having a pet. The pet dies and you just keep it around an extra week in the house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Buy a taxidermist for your dog. Just oh. you know, for the memory. Yeah, no good. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I'm very excited to have you on. Um, and since, you know, this is primarily a baseball podcast, I do want to kind of start there. Um Aside from the current lockout, and I know people are kind of sick of hearing about it. News came out this morning that there's uh, some some talks that are being scheduled. The Hall of Fame has been the only thing that we've been able to discuss in the baseball world um, this winter. Uh, you've written biographies on both Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Uh, it's their last year on the ballot. Do you think you'll ever live to see them being ducted? Not necessarily by the writers this year, but maybe in the future by a, a veterans committee? I could see that happening because I think, I think players are much less offended by the use of performance enhancers than people like I myself uh, am offended. I, I, don't, I don't think it bothers them as much. I think if, <clears throat> if you polled most baseball players from that era, I think they'd by a pretty high majority say that Bond and Clemens deserve to get in. Now, the weird thing about that that I find weird is they were all really, really offended by the Houston Astros cheating scandal and want nothing to do with those guys. But performance, they just view it differently. I'm not even being critical. They just view it differently. So if they don't get in this year, which I don't think they will, um, I do think ultimately the Veterans Committee or whatever it's called these days will find a way to get them in. 
and David Ortiz is getting in within the next three years, if not next year. And he had the, of course, the 2003 positive test. Piazza's in, Bagwell's in, Pudge's in, Bud Selig is in. Why are, are Bonds and Clemens kind of on the wrong side of, of these inconsistencies? Now, I just want to say for me, I'm not a voter, um, mm-hmm. but I cover baseball for a fairly long time. For me personally, I think it's all nonsense. Like, I think it's bullshit. Like, I, you can't have it both ways. Like, I'm strongly anti-cheaters in. I just don't think you reward people for cheating. I just don't. I don't. I always say, I wasn't alive for it. You certainly weren't alive for it. Or I wasn't around for it. When Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's all-time record, um, it wasn't just a baseball record. It was a civil rights record. It was this guy in the deep South, black man, getting hate mail and threats on his life. And he broke this record and it mattered. And then Bonds came along and the record doesn't matter anymore. Nobody gives a credit. Nobody cares about the all-time home run record anymore. And it was the biggest record in sports. Same with the single season home run record. So I, I don't think either guy belongs in, but you do have to be consistent. And to me, it's a blatant, obvious, it's just obvious a Piazza used. It's obvious a Bagwell used. We know Ortiz failed to test. Uh, Pudge, guys like that. So if no one's going to exercise consistency, then I guess you should put Bond and Clemens in. But for me, I just don't believe in rewarding cheaters. And people will say, well, what about Gaylord Perry? He, threw a, he cheated with a you know spitball. I don't think he should have been in. I think cheating is bullshit. I don't think it's right. But I'm in. I, I'm definitely in the minority as we move forward. So you mentioned the the home run the home run list, and it I, I agree that it's it's got some it's got a level of specialness that was taken away a little bit. Uh, do you remember where you were when Bonds hit seven fifty six against Mike Bassick in San Francisco in two thousand seven? I don't. I remember where I was. I was covering. I was I was at the Giants games when he hit. 71 and 72 i think and the crazy thing about it was um it meant almost nothing and i'm not just talking to me it meant definitely giants fans were excited in the stadium it didn't have a historic feel to it it just didn't it just felt empty and part of that is because mcguire sosa only happened a handful of years before so it wasn't it wasn't like we waited 30 years for this record to be broken um it just didn't feel the same and i just think most people looked at bonds and he was a cartoon you know, he was enormous and he was almost 40 and his head had grown in size. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And it just lacked all, it lacked authenticity, whether you like Bonds or not. I don't think anyone can deny it. It lacked a level of authenticity. Uh, and I think the damage is more than you probably think it is. You're, you're young. I'm not dismissing age. I'm saying experience. Like the record really did mean something. Like it really meant something. It was the biggest record in sports. And I always say this, I wrote a biography of Barry Bonds. I spent two years exhaustively researching Barry Bonds. I can't tell you what the all-time home run record is. 762 or three, maybe? Some know? people, 762, but some people still think it's 756 because yeah. that one swing. They yeah. don't know that he hit a few after that. No, I don't I don't even know what the single season home run record is. Is 72, 73? 73. 73. <laughs> and I covered him. I wrote a book about him. I mean, that's... It just doesn't have the same meaning. And I admit in the grand scheme of the scheme of the world, COVID, uh, election, whatever you want to talk about, modern times, it's not that big a deal, climate change. But in the specifics of covering sports, it bothers me. It's, it does bother me. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that some writers just don't vote them in because they were assholes to them? Is that Does that play an element at all? I mean, it probably does just because we're all humans and human nature is human nature. 
I think that's terrible. Like I am, um, I find Kurt Schilling morally objectionable in every measure of the sense. I would vote him in the Hall of Fame. I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. He's he disturbs me every way possible, but that's insignificant. That's not a. I'm, I'm not voting for him. His political views or his activism or lack of that. It's not a thing. But I, you know, sure we're all human. But I can tell you personally, for me, Bonds was never a jerk to me. Never. I had. I actually got the first. He wasn't talking to SI for years. I had a friend who went in between. I got the first SI interview with him in years. He was nice. When I was working on the book, he didn't talk to me, but he was incredibly nice and gracious about it. He wasn't a jerk about it. There was no personal animus for me toward Bonds. I just saw the way he treated other people routinely and how mean he was to other people. Um, and that, that bothered me a lot. It doesn't impact how I feel about his Hall of Fame status, but it definitely bothered me. Now, as I mentioned, you wrote one about Clemens as well. I mean, did you find any similarities between the two in terms of not maybe personality? Obviously, the PEDs, that's the similar, that's the, the big elephant in the room when we're talking about similarities but between the two. But did you find anything about like their personalities that just kind of matched each other when doing your interviews? The funny thing is Bonds is a lot smarter than Clemens, like a lot smarter than Clemens. I think Clemens is kind of a dunderhead. Like I think Clemens is... I used to always joke, like if you were to take a brainwave, a brain scan of Roger Clemens and it could verbalize, it would say uh, baseball, food, breasts, baseball, breasts, food. And Bonds was a smart guy. Bonds is a smart guy. There's, there was no doubt about that. He's very intelligent. He's very insightful. He reads people really well. He knows the mood of a room. The only thing I'd say that kind of bonds them or uh, binds them together for both those guys, like great really wasn't good enough. You know, like both those guys were great ball players who accomplished a ton in the primes of their careers and didn't use need to use PEDs. Like if Bonds never touches a, a steroid or a growth hormone, he's one of the 15 greatest outfielders of all time, which is terrific. That's a Hall of Fame outfielder. Roger Clemens never juices up in Toronto. He's one of the 20 greatest pitchers of all time, 15 greatest pitchers of all time. But for some of these guys, it's just not enough, you know, and there's jealousy and there's envy and there's money. And so I would say that's the one thing is they, they were amazing, but amazing wasn't enough. They had to be more amazing. And of course, Clemens had the Cy Youngs and Bonds had 400 homers, 400 steals, the seven gold gloves. They were definitely uh, on their way. Uh, and, and when you wrote Love Me, Hate Me, I mean, it was in such a strange time. I mean, sort of the the midst of the Balco scandal and um he hadn't the broke he hadn't broken the record yet but virtually nobody in america outside of san francisco cared um game of shadows was there you know around the same time and i don't know how much of this is under your control but is that a regret you know kind of coexisting with game of shadows was that something that you were able to control or no that did not work out well that book came, <laughs> came out three weeks about before mine i knew it was coming we tried spinning it the best way possible. Ah, two books. You know, there's this is more about steroids and this is more biography. But I, nah, I was doomed. That um, that book is great, first of all. I always say they deserve everything. I've never said a bad word about those guys. They're great writers. They're good people. But um, yeah, I mean, that was my worst selling book until Clemens. The one thing I actually learned the most, I don't think people want to really, I don't think people are that into spending 30 bucks to read about villains. Maybe if you're writing a book about Hitler or Mussolini or someone like that, it's one thing. 
I don't know if people really want to dive into the lives of people they don't really like very much. You know, I think for a lot of people, books are an escape. Uh, they want to read about that glorious season with whatever team. So I think that was more of a lesson for me is that it sold okay. Bond sold okay. Clement sold terribly. They're two sort of pox in my career a little bit. What was your best-selling book? I think it was my first book, The Bad Guys Won, which is about the 80s. Mm -hmm. Either that or my Showtime book about the 80s Lakers. Those are probably my two bestsellers. And I know you do hundreds of interviews uh, for each of these books. I mean, take me through that process. I've always been interested in how biographers get a hold of so many people. So take me through that process from, you know, tracking people down to, you know, finally running through the transcripts. I mean, the key to it all really is um, one person leads to two and two people lead to four and four mm. people lead to seven. Like you, you get one person and you always say, well, who, um, who should I call? Who would you recommend me calling? Oh, you should call uh, Barry's barber. We shared a barber. Well, do you have a number for Barry's barber? Oh yeah, I got a number. You should give him a call. Tell him John sent you. And then you talk to the barber and the barber's like, oh, you know, who you should talk to Barry's masseuse. Blah, blah, blah. So that, that's a lot of it. Um, another thing is buying all the media guides, getting the old media guides and just going name by name through the media guides. Nowadays, tracking down people isn't nearly as hard as it used to be because most people are either on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. So you can always get them through that. And I'm just, I'm a fan of, uh, I'm a fan of massive amounts of interviews. Like that's kind of my thing. And I, um, I always say my philosophy toward writing, actually, I think about it with, um, I, I told the story in that Barry Bonds book. I used to go to high school with a guy named Dave Fleming and Dave Fleming wound up pitching for the Seattle Mariners. And I was a freshman in high school and Dave Fleming was a senior in high school. And one day we were on the bus together. I was a freshman in high school. And I said, I asked a trivia question to a friend of mine and Dave Fleming turned around and answered the question. It's the only time I ever talked to Dave Fleming in high school. I remember vividly sitting in the seat. I think I remember what Dave Fleming was wearing. I remember exactly what the question was. And my philosophy when I write is like, the guy who's with the Giants for two weeks as a September call-up is gonna remember everything about Barry Bonds, every interaction he had with Bonds. Bonds isn't gonna remember those interactions. So I always call those people and they might have one story. Like I wrote a Brett Favre biography and some guy who was in camp with the Packers for a very brief period of time, remembered Favre when this guy had like a broken arm or something, Favre coming over and tying his shoes for him. Well, that's a really telling story that Brett Favre probably wouldn't remember. Um, so that's really big for me is calling everyone, calling everyone, calling everyone. And at the same time, finding every article, every book, everything that was written about the subject and building this library. So on the one hand, you have this huge library of material of stuff that was written. On the other hand, you have all these interviews that is hopefully fresh material and you kind of merge it all together. That's, that's art right there. That's art. And another form of art. And I heard this on your podcast. I was doing some some research into you, and I, I heard you talking to Michael K. And you mentioned that you're a sucker for great interviewers. So, what makes an an interview elite? How how does a good interview go from a great interview? I mean, ideally, you want to reach a point where the person kind of forgets that you're interviewing them, and that you're not holding a tape recorder or taking notes or whatever it is like. You want to get to a point where it feels like a conversation. That's a cliche. Everyone will tell you that in journalism, but it's actually true. You, it has to be a conversation. Um, and you also like the worst interviewers I've ever seen are the ones who keep talking about themselves. Like you're not there. Now, if I'm interviewing you and you tell me you're from the Bay Area, right? 
And let's say I've been to the Bay Area two weeks ago. I might say to you, like, I don't know you and we open up an interview and I know you're from San Francisco. And I might say, oh, I went to uh, Giardelli's for chocolate in San Francisco when I was there. And you're going to say, oh, really? What'd you get? And I'll be like, oh, I got this ice cream. And you'll be like, oh, that's my favorite flavor. Have you tried so-and-so? And I'll say, no, I never tried that. And you'll be like, you totally should. Let me know how, it's, how it is when you try it. That's a good way to talk about myself because it breaks down the ice of an interview. Like that's a good. But then when I start asking you questions, except for maybe tiny little asides, it's not about me. And I'm assuming you, because I'm here to interview you, don't really care about me. And you, you have no reason to care about me. So you want it to be a, a, a conversation, but it can't be about you. I'm wasting as little time as I can about me. I am insignificant in this dialogue. So if you can break it down, have a really casual, have the person open up, have the person feel comfortable. And the other thing is, is like, I have to go in, me as the interviewer, um, showing you without saying it, like blatantly saying it, that I've done my research and I know about you. Like, I'm not gonna ask you, am I, if I'm preparing for this interview, I'm not gonna ask you, oh, so how old are you? First, how old are you? Or, so where'd you go to college? Or um, what are your parents? Like, everything I should know, I'm gonna know. And not only that, I'm gonna show that person that I know it. I'm gonna say, so you went to, let's say you went to whatever, uh, whatever high school, you went to some high school. And I know that, let's just say like uh, Seth Curry also went to that high school, right? And you weren't there at the same time. But I'm going to know in my head that Seth Curry went to your high school. I'm going to be like, so you went to the same high school as Seth Curry. And that's going to show you that I know where you went to high school. And that sends a message that I've like done my research, you know? So the more of that stuff you can do, the better, I think. Hundreds of interviews at this point, maybe thousands. In my who's life? Yeah. Who, who's, who's the best? Probably tens of thousands. Best ever? I mean, the funny thing is now I'm so old that this happened before you were born, but my the most infamous interview I ever did was with this ball player, John Rocker. Yeah. Pitcher. <laughs> and he's a vile, horrible, disgusting sloth of a human being, but it's probably the best interview I ever had because the guy has talked and talked and talked for six hours or whatever it was. So I didn't agree with it. And there's a good, that's a good, I use that when I, when I talk to younger students about journalism and interviewing, I use that as a really good example. Like I disagreed with everything that guy said, not everything, but you know, 98%. I disagree with his baseball points probably, but everything socially, I'm like a liberal Jew from New York. And this guy is telling me all his anti everything's. But it's not my job to debate him. Like, I'm not there to debate John Rocker. I'm there to hear and learn about him. So when he's saying, like, uh, foreigners need to get out of this country. Now, I'm not going to egg him on. I'm going to be like, oh, really? And he's going to just even little things. Oh, really? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, so how'd you get that? How'd you, how'd you start feeling that way? Well, blah, 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 blah. Well, what was that like? Blah, 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 blah. He was an amazing interview because he just went on and on and on and had no filter whatsoever. Um, so he's probably the best I've ever had in a weird way. Yeah, that's the one that I was going to I was going to ask you about John Rocker. Um, but I mean, you kind of covered it a little bit. Uh, you know I, I love I, yeah. one thing I love. You're 19 years old. I would say 98 percent of your peers, even who like baseball, have, who have no idea who John Rocker is. And that actually warms my heart because mm -hmm. there's no greater. There's nothing greater sort of there's no greater indignity for a public figure than to be forgotten 
And that guy of everything of all the things deserves to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And and there's a point where he looked like he was going to be a pretty promising big league reliever. And it just kind of, I mean, it never, he never made his mark in terms of baseball greatness. (laughs) I forgot the line from Bo Durham, but there, you know, million dollar arm, 10 cent head. There you go. Yeah. No brain, no pain. That's what they, that's what they say. (laughs) So why was journalism something and sports writing uh, a a path that you kind of wanted to go down? I'm probably like a lot of guys. I, uh, I wasn't a great athlete. I was a fine athlete. Like I ran, um, track and cross country and all that. Um, you know, I wrote for my high school newspaper in Mayo Pack, New York. And I was, um, I always say this, and sometimes it's hard to tell if you're telling a story and you've told it so many times that it becomes true or if it actually is true, but it feels true. I did a story about, um, by the way, am I breaking up or am I relatively okay? You're good. Okay. I did a story about um, one, one, I think I was a senior in high school and it was called cheerleading, sports or activity. And uh, I decided it was an activity, not a sport. And I wrote this story. It was like an essay. Really oh, I'm sure it's a piece of crap, but I wrote it. And um, the, ne- the paper comes out and I'm in school and all the cheerleaders are pissed off at me and they're surrounding me in the cafeteria. And I just have this memory in my head. It's game. It's the night day before the game. So they're all wearing their cheerleader uniforms and their short skirts and they have their hair done and they're perfumed up and the whole thing. And you're me and you're 17 or 18 years old, 17 years old, have never kissed a girl surrounded by all these like, you know, the hot girls in school and they're all talking to you and they're all mad at you. And I just remember that having a very profound effect. It's not why I do it now, but I remember that having a very profound effect on me. Like, holy shit, people, people pay attention to you and you have a voice and it matters. And um, I just, I also was always like, I was the kid growing up. I grew up in a small town and we had a local sports talk radio show. And every week I would call in every week. It was called Talking Sports with Tim Osbury and Joe Bacchino. Every Saturday morning, I would call in and talk sports with these guys until they invited me to the studio once to be a co-host as a kid. And I just had these really moments where I was a sports geek. I really liked writing. I loved the cheerleaders surrounding me in the uh, cafeteria. And uh, I just, the bug bit me, you know? I feel like writing that cheerleading is gonna is an activity, not a sport, would make you public enemy number one. That didn't happen. The thing is, back then, this is 1990, 89, you could argue that it was an activity. Like it wasn't flips and curls and blah, blah, blah. It was them standing on the sideline doing like the, the Rockettes kick. You know, it wasn't the same thing. <laughs> YMCA. Yeah. And I, the thing is, I love for what, yeah, right, doing the YMCA. Like I was, um, I would say I really, I didn't mind being the villain. And like in college at the University of Delaware, I was the columnist who was always bashing fraternities and bashing sororities and bashing the university and taking people down. And then people would send letters and I would get a charge off it. And I, I'm sure I wrote a lot of things just deliberately to make people angry, which is not the way to go. It's just not professional, but I wasn't professional. I was a college kid. And um, I do think that buzz and that attention and even being the enemy, I think there's something kind of fun about that. And that, I, I feel like that directly correlates to how you got associated with the Barry Bonds and the Roger Clemens of the world and the John Rockers. Do you feel the same? I don't because people, you know, I used to, people used to say, Oh, he only writes about the bad guys, right? Oh, why do you only write about the bad guys? I would get that a lot. And the truth of the matter is like, 
they're just all they all had interesting careers and they were in john rocker i i was assigned it wasn't like i mm -hmm. no way i was assigned to do john rocker barry bonds was a really controversial and fascinating figure roger clemens was a really fascinating figure if someone wants me to write a, a book about buster posey i mean i guess i could i just don't think that many people are reading it like the, we're, we're drawn to interesting figures there's a reason i would say there's a reason Brett Favre is a much, 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 much better subject as a book than Ken Griffey Jr. They were both contemporaries. They both had very similar careers in their sports. They're both all-time greats. One guy drew people's emotions and one guy was a great player. And I just think we, if you're gonna write about people, if you're gonna write subject about subjects that people are interested in, they tend to be subjects that draw emotions. Mm -hmm. uh and when, when you started to focus on these books, I mean, and, and kind of more or less step away from the everyday grind of journalism, was that was that an easy decision to kind of move on and, and focus on the books? Oh, terrifying. Yeah, it was really terrifying. I am. Um, I've been at Sports Illustrated, happy, but got burnt out. Took a job at a newspaper in New York called Newsday for a year. I just wanted to do something besides sports. And I got this job doing long features. The job was roam around New York City write really long features about people you find interesting. It was killer. And I was doing that while working on the Bonds book, the early part of the Bonds book. And like a lot of newspapers, and that newspaper is having a lot of financial trouble. And one day I got a call and they're like, we want, we're changing it up. They want all writers to come into the office four days a week. And I was like, I am not coming in the office four days a week. And I said to my wife, I want to just try focusing on books. And luckily she had a steady job with health insurance, which made me able to do it. You know, it's, it's life is life. And I was scared. I didn't know how it would go. I had, I said to my wife the other day, I had an editor at Sports Illustrated when my first book came out, this real asshole of an editor was like, I don't know why you people write books. It never worked. You all think you're going to be best-selling authors and it almost never works out. And like, you know, I just, I really wanted to do it. I really wanted to try it. And um, I was terrified, but I really wanted to try it. It's worked out really well, actually. So have you flexed on that former editor? Uh, I don't even have his number. He's an asshole. I just kind of moved on. Yeah, forget about him. Yeah, yeah. I did right now on your podcast. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and it's funny because when I tell people what industry that I want to go in, I, I always get the response. Why do you want to go into a failing industry? You know, it's dead. How accurate is that? Is that idea that, you know, print journalism is dying down. Cause I know the first time I saw it was when Ken Rosenthal was writing for Fox sports and they switched it up and they went all video and they took away all uh, print content on there and they just went completely multimedia. So is that, is there something to the point where, you know, journalism or sports journalism is somehow declining fast? All right, so use, it's really interesting. This is a fascinating generational thing. Use the term print journalism. And for me, print journalism actually means print on a page. And mm -hmm. to you, I think print means written word, correct? Well, I, I could see it both ways. Yeah. But when you say print journalism, you mean the written word, right? Yeah. Right, it's very interesting. Because I thought print journalism, like literally saying, I want to get a job and write for a print magazine or news, print newspaper, not the best. But the thing is like, the thing you have going for you, this is why I always say to like the 19 year olds or 20 year olds getting into the business. Places want people like you because people like me are expensive. And I'm not saying me in 
terms of any talent or not or lack of talent. I'm saying um, people have been around a while. You know, their salary increases incrementally every year. And after a while, they just become expensive. And one thing all these places are trying to do is cut back on costs. So if you can have, you can hire me, you're at ESPN.com or someone, The Athletic. And there are two writers, me and you going for a job, okay? And right now I'm 49, you're 19. I would probably do a better job than you. And that's no insult to you. Like I'm just saying experience-wise at this point in our lives, I would probably do a better job than you. But if I'm an editor at The Athletic, all right, here's this 19-year-old guy. He's going to be able to relate with the players because they're, they're his age. He's going to write for a fourth of the salary. Um, we can work with him. He's going to be open to editing. He's not going to be stubborn. He's not going to have any demands or expectations. A lot of people are going to go and understandably go with you. So I actually think like for young journalists entering the profession, it's not a bad time. There are tons of places to write online. Um, one thing you don't have to go through that we all had to go through, like I came along, I knew I was going to have to cover high school sports first. And it's actually great, but I knew that was part of the path. You're going to start a newspaper. You're going to, I did it, the Nashville, Tennessee, and you start as a high school sports writer. Then you move up, you move up. Maybe you cover the local college. Then you cover a bigger college. Your dreams to cover an NFL team or whatever, baseball, major league baseball. Someone comes along. Eventually you're doing that. It's a long process. Nowadays, you can be covering University of Texas tomorrow. You know, like you graduate, they need a B writer. It's some website. The money's harder to come by. Uh, there's less job security, but there are plenty of opportunities. Hmm. And and one thing that I, I wondered about the book process is, so for example, when you wrote the 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 bad guys one, which was the the book about the '86 Mets. It was more than 20 years removed from that team and similar to kind of the three ring circus around those Kobe, Shaq, Phil Jackson, Lakers teams. Um, but in, in terms of, of bonds, he was still playing. He was still there and it, I, th there might have been, you know, still more story to tell. Uh, and some sports writers are, are writing biographies of players during their career like for example marcus thompson wrote books about steph curry's career and kevin durant uh so those are done and so i i was wondering and this is something that is always on my mind whenever i see even an autobiography in barnes and noble like i, I think a few years ago i saw dustin pedroia's book there and after he wrote that book he had just the assortment of injuries and his career ended you know very early because of it and i was thinking in my head i was like gosh when is the right time to write a biography because i feel like you know in pedroia's case he left a lot out and i feel like some at some point in time there has to be the right time to write it and there has to be the wrong time to write it so what, what would be your philosophy on that that is a great question not just a good question that's a great question um Okay, so I'm good friends with, uh, do you know the writer Mirren Fader? She writes for The Ringer. I don't. Okay, there's a writer, she wrote a book on Giannis earlier this year. And oh, I do. <laughs> yes. Okay, and when Mirren told me she wanted to do a biography of Giannis, I thought, bad idea, right? Giannis is 25 years old, maybe. Like, what has he done in his life? He's 25 years old. And the book wound up soaring up the New York Times bestseller list. He had a fascinating backstory blah, 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 blah. Like it worked out really well for her. It didn't hurt, didn't hurt that the Bucks won the NBA championships, which mm -hmm. that was, and it was a great book. I would say that's the exception. Uh, for me, the sweet spot for an athlete biography or autobiography to come out 
is four years after they retire, maybe five years. So you have a little nostalgia. They're still relevant. The audience is there. Like people say to me sometimes, you should do a book about the 78 Yankees, right? 78 Yankees. That's a great subject. You had Thurman Munson and Reggie Jackson and world champs. And I'm like, you can't do it because the, the people who are nostalgic for that team are now in their eighties and nineties. And it's just nostalgia moves. I always say this nostalgia moves as we get older, nostalgia moves. No one's the people who are nostalgic for the seventies, sixties are very old. Now people nostalgic for the eighties. That's my age. That's okay. That's good. People nostalgic for the nineties, a little younger, also very good. Um, so I think, to do a biography now of like some ball player from the seventies, I think it, I'm not saying it's wrong to do, but I think commercially you missed your, your money spot. Like Brett Favre came out maybe four years after he retired. There was a money time. That book sold humongously for me. And that's because there was a money spot to do it. So that's, to me, that's the real sweet spot to write. I, I think if you did a Ken Griffey Jr. book now, 12 years after you retired, um, you start to get to that point where it's like, I don't know, is anyone gonna, is anyone gonna care? Yeah, and, and I just pre-ordered the Howard Bryant, Ricky Henderson oh. book that's coming out. First of all, Howard's a good friend of mine. He's the best. That book's going to be great. Ricky Henderson transcends everything because he's just crazy and there are a million stories. Um, I'm super excited for that book. And he's a great, Howard, Howard's one of the best. Mm -hmm. And it was half off on, on Amazon. So it, it's, I, I guess, it today. yeah, 15, it started off at 30. And then I looked the other day because Howard Bryant tweeted the link and it was $15. So I was like, that's a steal. And Ricky Henderson's, I mean, you just mentioned it, how, um, you know, some things, sometimes the nostalgia level goes down on some things uh, as time passes. But Ricky's a guy that like still has his prints on today's game with all the excitement. And we always hear that Ricky was kind of the trailblazer um, with celebrations and you know feeling yourself in the swag and it kind of carried on to griffey and griffey has that kind of same effect so i can't wait to read that one that one should be uh, a lot of fun uh to read uh, about ricky oh, yeah. henderson and he's a great reporter that's the thing about howard like the thing about these books the important things and that i think the difference between a good biography a crappy biography good biography great biography is the level of reporting you're willing to do and it's a great subject with a great reporter no doubt about it. Um, and it's, I believe for those listening and for those watching, I believe it's May of 2022. So a few more months than we get to, to read about uh, Ricky. Um, Jeff Perlman's bucket list. Okay. I mean, if there's any book that is on the top of it uh, about any individual, any sports team, any topic, maybe like a dream book, what would it be? Uh, Tupac. Tupac. Mm. Which I've, I keep talking to my agent about and want to do and want to do. And I just haven't gotten to it yet. But that's my, uh, that's my book I want to write. And I know we'll get to see another one soon. Uh, Bo Jackson, the, the last folk hero is, folk hero is on its way. Uh, so what was kind of the inspiration behind, uh, behind Bo Jackson? I mean, the guy was myth. Like, that's the thing about Bo Jackson. He's mythology. He actually... I feel like he transcends hopefully everything I was just saying about the sweet spot to write a book and blah, blah, blah. Like people my age. So he came along in 86. I was 14 when he came up. We're 
uh, we are still fascinated by Bo Jackson and like what was and what could have been and just sort of what would have happened, you know? And he was a shooting star that people still know. Like you still know about Bo Jackson. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's weird. I think like John Rocker played 20 years, Bo Jackson played almost 40 years ago. Far more people your age know Bo Jackson than John Rocker. You know, like there's just something about his mythology and playing two sports and then just vanishing that makes him a great subject. So I don't know if it'll sell five copies or 5 million copies, but you know, it was a, it was a really joy to, to research and kind of kept me sane during COVID, I gotta say. And, and I ask people all the time, whether it's just banter with friends or, you know, a formal podcast or whatever, who's the greatest athlete of all time. And they always answer with like, Bo Jackson is like one in every two answers. When I ask that I question, say, Bo, I would say it too. I mean, the stuff, there's just a million stories about that guy doing things freakishly weird things that nobody else could do and like like when I, I wrote a book about walter payton and walter payton used to do this thing where he would he would lie down he'd fall down he'd be on his back and somehow he'd flip himself up and that was something that blew everyone away he'd just lie on his back bend his knees flip himself up to his feet well bo jackson that would be like the 10 millionth most amazing i mean you've seen the wall climb yeah like i interviewed so many people about that wall climb and it's funny because after it happened across major league baseball the next day and the day after players on different teams went out to their own outfields to try climbing the wall and nobody could do it it's one of those things like there's a reason you've never seen anyone do it before or since it was so preposterously athletic and that's not even the most impressive thing he did so mm -hmm. it, it, didn't he homer and and at dodger stadium in one of the all-star games and someone said that it was the loudest crack of the bat that they've ever heard that was a that was the '89 All Star game in Anaheim. So it was in Anaheim, and it was uh, I mean, he led off the All Star game. He wasn't even a leadoff hitter; he was a power. He led off the All Star game. President Ronald Reagan is in the booth with Vin Scully calling <laughs> the game, and he hits a home run to dead center. Like, it's this magical moment. YouTube it if you have a chance. It's just an absolutely magical moment. I mean, he has a million moments. He was just a man of moments. A hundred percent. We can't wait for that. But what is the process? Or uh, not? Not what? What is the process? Where is the process right now with that book? What stage is uh, the Bo Jackson a folk hero in? My editor has it. So right now it goes. You wait. You hand it in. You think it sucks. You give it to your editor. He confirms it sucks. You go through the changes, and you know, it's kind of the hellscape of it all. There you go. <laughs> so finally, I, I I briefly mentioned uh, the Lakers book about um, the Shaq, Kobe, and Phil Jackson Lakers in the 2000s. But you you uh, had a previous book about the Showtime Lakers, uh, and that's currently being turned into an HBO series. How in the world does something like that happen? Do you just get a call out of the blue saying, you know, we're going to turn this into a series? Like, how involved are you in, in that project? Yeah, it's. It's, uh, it's one of the most unique things I've ever had happen in my life because I have found if you write enough books and especially books about sort of big figures and big teams, you'll have people come along and be somewhat often and say, oh, I want to option that. We want to make a movie. We want to make a movie. And it almost never happens. Like it actually almost never happens. And then this one, someone came along, this guy, Jim Hecht, really nice guy. And he said, I want to make this into, we can make this into something. And I was like, okay, all right, whatever. And I, I, I signed a deal. I don't think, I don't even know if I got paid. I was like, no one was really interested in this book. I was like, all right, 
for years, nothing, nothing figured it's just nonsense going to fade away. And one day he's like, you know, I think HBO is interested. I'm like, uh, okay, whatever. And then one day it's like Adam McKay, who just did Don't Look Up <laughs> and a million other things. We're going to go to Adam McKay's house. All right. I don't even know who that is. Like I'm Googling Adam McKay as I'm standing outside his house. Like, who's this guy? Oh, shoot. And then one day they're like, start filming. And you're like, holy shit, this is actually a thing. Like, this is a thing. And um, my involvement, they've been great. Like they really have me. First of all, my wife, myself, my two kids all have cameos in the first episode, which is sweet. And one of the great days of my life, my wife's life. Um, I They asked me to sort of, they show me all the episodes and what do you think of this? And does this work? And what do you think of this and that work? And I've been to the set a bunch of times. And it's not like a day-to-day -day at all thing. I'm not one of the writers. I shouldn't be one of the writers. Like you write the book, you hand it over to them. They've been very, very gracious and kind about including me when they probably don't even have to. So does your price of, you know, if anybody wants to recruit you to be an actor, does, do you just flash that you made a cameo in this, in this, uh, in this show? I mean, you're going to have to blink to see me. Like if you don't blink, you'll see me in the first episode playing a reporter, but my wife, you see, uh, you actually see, she has a, she has a very slight speaking role. So, uh, mm -hmm. that's, it's really, it's a thrill. It's kind of cool. Oh, so you're playing a reporter? Yeah, I'm a reporter. Oh, that's so fitting. It's a stretch. Yeah. I yeah. One thing I would say, it's like me, it's a bunch of reporters entering a press conference. And back when I would cover sports a lot, I would always keep a, uh, a pen in my ear. That was, I just did habitually. And I'm walking into this press area and then you see me take the pen out of my ear. So that was my little uh, homage to, I don't know, old journalists or something. How did they like make that decision? <laughs> How did they make that decision to even cast you? Or are you just like standing on the set and they say, oh, one of our extras didn't show up or like, was that really oh. predetermined? They were like, do you want to be in it? And does your wife want to be in it? And I was like, yes and yes. And then do your kids want to do it? Yes and yes. So they just called and asked. It's not like I would ever, I'm definitely not a guy who'd be like, hey, can make sure to put us in it. We have to be like, I'm not, it would not cross my mind to be that person, but they just asked. They were nice. You're in your prime right now of movie, of acting. You're in your acting I, I'm prime. Definitely my, my, I'm definitely my prime as an actor and much more to come in my tremendous acting career. Yeah, can't wait for those other projects and yeah. future Oscar nominations and such. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, I really appreciate this. This was a lot of fun and uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, you guys could follow Jeff on Twitter, of course, at Jeff Perlman. Um, keep an eye out for that, uh, that HBO series that's coming up in March. Keep an eye out for the Bo Jackson book, which is currently being torn apart by Jeff's editor. And uh, go ahead and uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram uh, at RizzoCast for more content pretty soon. And thank you guys for listening and have a great day.